Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Sam. Good to see you all here. Uh, as we've heard from the Bible reading, uh, the passages we're looking at this morning in 2 Corinthians are about generosity. So let me ask, uh, what should motivate Christian generosity? Have you ever thought about that? We know that generosity is a good thing, right? Uh, God wants us to do good, so therefore we should be generous. But what should really motivate the heart of generosity? What should we expect? Uh, The Roman Catholic Church teaches that generosity is part of what we do to earn our way into God's good books. Uh, Giving money to the poor and especially to the church are good deeds which help offset the bad things we've done in life. Uh, Giving money to the poor is one of the ways that you earn your uh, place in God's family. That's one motivation for generosity. Another motivation you might have heard of is the prosperity gospel. Many churches uh, teach that God wants to bless you with earthly riches. Uh, Brian Houston, uh, the leader of Hillsong Church here in Sydney, wrote a book in 1999 called You Need More Money. In this book, he quotes 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 as evidence that God wants us to have earthly riches. Give generously, but not too much, and God will respond by blessing your life and making you rich. That's why Jesus died. You heard the Bible reading? Jesus became poor so you can become rich. Is he right? There are many churches today which teach the prosperity gospel and encourage people to give so that they can become rich. But this morning we're going to look at what the Bible says. Why should Christians be generous and give? Does it earn us favor with God? Should we expect any sort of reward? And what's the right amount to give? So our passage this morning is all about generosity. Paul the Apostle is trying to persuade the reluctant Corinthian church to be generous. And it's like we get a little snapshot into first century Christian fundraising techniques. We get to listen in on Paul's conversation with the Corinthians and hear how he's trying to persuade them to be generous. Uh, So uh, to understand what's going on, I've got a little map to help us get some background, which should come up on the screen uh, in a moment for us. Alrighty. The important thing to know is that back in the Middle East, uh, in the first century, there's a famine in Jerusalem over in Palestine. That's way over in the corner. And the Christians in Jerusalem are struggling uh, to survive. They've got barely enough to eat. So Paul has been traveling around the Mediterranean, taking up a collection to help the Christians in Jerusalem. Paul mentioned that in his first letter to the Corinthian church uh, in 1 Corinthians 16. He said to them, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. Now, at first, the Corinthians were really keen to help out. They're a big church, but then the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians hit the rocks. As we've been hearing throughout 2 Corinthians, there's been some conflict. Last time Paul visited the Corinthian church, they had a lot of disagreement, which we heard about last week. Uh, But the Corinthian church has been repenting. And right now, Paul is visiting Macedonia in the north. That's the green-ish 
not quite green, patch up there. He's planning to send Titus down south to Corinth, which is in Achaia. And 2 Corinthians, which we're reading in our Bibles, is the message that he gives Titus to take. So with that in mind, what does Paul say to the Corinthians about generosity? How does he persuade them to give? Well, he begins by showing them the source of generosity. Have a look with me at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now, let me point out three things that Paul says about the generosity of these Macedonian churches. Firstly, did you notice they were generous in the midst of suffering and poverty? Despite severe affliction and extreme poverty, their joy overflowed in generosity. It's the opposite of what we expect, isn't it? Surely, uh, in the midst of affliction, these churches should be saving their money. Uh, Surely they should be focusing on their own needs. Surely they should be putting aside what little money they have for their children's education. Surely they should be trying to get ahead and get out of poverty. Surely they should wait until they have a stable income and a good buffer in the bank before they recklessly give their money away. But look again at verse 2. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty somehow together overflowed in a wealth of generosity. In the midst of hardship, instead of complaining, they're full of joy. And their joy is so great that it can't help but burst out in generosity to others. They want to share what little they have to live on with those who have nothing. They're generous in poverty. And secondly, they're generous beyond their means. Uh, The amount of their generosity is extreme. Have a look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Paul says they gave beyond their means. The amount they gave wasn't just leftover change at the end of the week. It was some sort of amount that cost them. They made real sacrifices to give. They were so full of joy at the opportunity to share in Paul's collection that they dug deep and it really cost them. So, poverty and extreme generosity. Uh, What is Paul's sales technique? How did he make them cough up so much? Well, look at verse 3 again. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. The third thing Paul says is that these churches, these poor churches, were generous without even being asked. They gave of their own accord, their own free will, and they actually begged for the privilege of giving. Can you imagine what this would have been like? 
Uh, Paul turns up in Macedonia to visit these churches. He arrives and he looks around. He sees how desperately poor they are. He sees how little they have to eat. He sits and he talks with them. And he hears about how much persecution and hardship they're facing. And he thinks to himself, I can't ask these guys for money. Uh, They've got nothing to spare. But then they come to him and they say, Paul, we've heard about the famine in Jerusalem and we want to make a donation. Uh, We've prayed about this and we've all pitched in. Here it is. And Paul is amazed and he tries to refuse. He says, no, look, thank you, but I can't accept this. I can see how poor you are. You need this for yourself. You keep your money and I'll go talk to the rich guys in Corinth. They've got lots to spare. But the Macedonian churches insist. They actually beg Paul, please, brother, accept our gift. Let us share in the privilege of helping our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. How can Paul possibly say no to this incredible generosity? So he accepts their tiny donation, which is still far more than he ever expected they would give. This is pretty different to how we normally think of generosity, isn't it? Uh, We think that we can only be generous when life is going well and we have enough. And we think that we can only give away what we have left over after taking care of our own needs, uh, like new phones and laptops. And usually someone needs to come to us and beg for money, don't they? But not the Macedonian churches. In the midst of poverty and hardship, they beg for the privilege of giving. And then they make sacrifices beyond their means. So what's the secret? Well, Paul tells us the secret is God's grace. Did you notice that in verse 1? Paul didn't begin by saying, we want you to know about how generous the Macedonian churches are. Aren't they amazing? Now look at verse 1 again. He says, we want you to know about the grace of God that has been given to the Macedonian churches. This incredible generosity in their hearts is the work of God's grace, he's saying. It's a gift. God's grace has given them joy in their poverty. God's grace has given them the opportunity to be generous. And God's grace has so changed their hearts that they are deeply generous. That's the secret. God's grace is the source of generosity. So what does this mean for us? Uh, Firstly, I think it should reshape our prayers. It means we should start by praying that God would give us the grace to be generous. We should ask God for opportunities to be generous and hearts that are willing. And when God gives us the grace to be generous, instead of patting ourselves on the back and feeling good, uh, we should thank God for his grace. And if you see other Christians being generous... We should praise God for the work of his grace in their lives because grace is the source of generosity. Now, secondly, uh, the example of generosity. After Paul has explained that grace is the source, he points the Corinthians to the ultimate example of what grace looks like. Now, have a look down at verse 8. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul points them to the example of Jesus. Sounds good, doesn't it? But what does it actually mean? How does Jesus' riches and poverty relate to our poverty and riches? Uh, take, take 30 seconds and have a chat with the person next to you. Uh, what do you think Paul means when he talks about Jesus' riches and poverty? What does Paul mean when he talks about Jesus' riches and poverty? Have a quick chat just with the person beside you. All right, I might grab you back together now. Uh, it's a little bit tricky, I think, when you actually think about it, because Paul is talking metaphorically. Uh, he doesn't spell it out for us, but I think he's using riches and poverty to talk about Jesus' death and our salvation. And this is worth reflecting on. Uh, let me point out some of the ways the Bible talks about Jesus' riches. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And again in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is rich in power and authority and status. He was there when God created the world. When the sun burst into existence with blazing light and heat, Jesus was there. When God spoke and commanded the planets into existence and to orbit and to stay, they obeyed. And Jesus was there. Jesus was with God in the beginning, in perfect relationship. And he was rich in every possible way. But he set aside his riches, didn't he? Uh, Jesus became poor because of our sin. God looked down on earth and all of these little puny little humans shaking their fist. Uh, all of creation was submitting to the will of God except us. Uh, the angels bowed before God, uh, but we used the lungs that God gave us and the air he gives us to breathe to shout back, No! 
in his face and rebel against him. And instead of crushing us for our rebellion, God sent his son. Jesus willingly set aside his riches and his status and he came down to save us. He was the one who was rich beyond all measure, but he became poor. Philippians 2 puts it this way. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took the judgment that we deserve upon his shoulders, and he was stripped of everything, even life. As we often sing, the hands that flung stars into space were nailed to a wooden cross as the puny little humans killed their creator. Paul wrote about Jesus' sacrifice earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 21, he reminded the Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how Jesus became poor for our sake. He took the curse of sin and died in our place. And so how, do we, how have we become rich? What was the outcome of this great sacrifice? Well, Paul, when he was writing to the Ephesian church, uh, said this about our riches. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything... Every blessing is ours. We've been adopted as God's children through Jesus. God has welcomed us back into the family. We have the promise of eternal life, the certain hope that we will see God face to face. Our citizenship, our real passport is in heaven. And we've got God's spirit dwelling in us now, changing our hearts to put off sin and put on righteousness. Friends, these are the spiritual riches that Jesus has given us through the cross. Uh, Brian Houston is wrong. Jesus didn't become poor so that we could gain some temporary earthly riches. He became poor and died so that we might have eternal riches with God. Now this is also why the Roman Catholic teaching about grace and generosity is wrong. We don't give to others for the sake of earning our way into God's family. God has already accepted us into his family through Jesus' sacrifice. We have salvation as a gift and we are already rich. So we give to others in response to Jesus' generosity towards us. Now how much should Christians be willing to give? The answer is as much as Jesus He had everything and he gave it all up freely for us. Paul is saying this is the standard of generosity if you want to measure yourself. God's grace to us in salvation is the example of generosity we're called to follow. Now you might be thinking, hang on, does that mean I have to give up everything? 
that's not what Paul was actually trying to say. After pointing out Jesus' example, uh, have a look at what he says to the Corinthians in verse 12. For if the readiness is there, talking about their gift, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Uh, The goal in generosity is fairness and equality. Uh, It's only fair that those of us who have more should share with those who have less. Paul is saying, look at the grace of the Lord Jesus. If he gave up everything for your sake, surely this should motivate you to share with others. Jesus' grace is our example of generosity. Now, thirdly, the reward of generosity. How does God respond to our generosity? Is there any reward? Well, in chapter 9, Paul does actually speak about the idea of reward. Uh, Have a look with me at chapter 9, verse 6. Paul says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul's using the image of a farmer sowing seed in his field. Now, I haven't done this myself, but I've seen stuff on movies and it doesn't sound too complicated. Uh, It seems to me there are two ways you can sow your seeds when you're planting a field. One way is you walk along and you take your seeds one by one, you dust them off, you make a little hole and you neatly put them in. And if you're OCD, you make sure it's a straight line. Uh, One by one, you plant your seeds and you try and make your bag of seed uh, last as many years as possible. But you don't get much of a harvest in return. The other way is to toss your seed out. You grab handfuls of seed and scatter it as you walk along. Uh, You don't worry about saving up your seeds for the next year. You sow as much of it as you can in the present season because the more you sow into the field the more crops you'll get when the season of harvest comes and Paul is saying that this image of farming is the same when it comes to money and generosity he's saying that generosity giving money away is like a farmer planting seeds the more seeds you sow the more money you give the bigger your harvest will be the bigger the reward will be. Uh, On face value, this sounds a little bit like the prosperity gospel, doesn't it? Uh, Give and God will bless you. But that's not quite what Paul is saying. You see, Paul tells us that God's reward when we give is quite specific. Uh, Have a look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in what? Financial prosperity? No, look at the text. So that you may abound in every good work. God will reward our generosity with more grace. He'll make sure that we have what we need, sufficiency in all things at all times. And the purpose 
is not so that we can store it up for ourselves. Uh, The goal is that we overflow with good works and keep being generous. It's the same idea in verse 10. Uh, Have a look further down. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for storing and increase the harvest of your stock portfolio. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. God will multiply your seed for sowing, not for storing, and God will increase the harvest of your righteousness. Paul is reminding us that God is the one who gave us what we already have. If we have any seed to sow, if we have any money to give in the first place, God is the one who gave it to us, just as he provides for us day by day. And if we give it away, God can resupply us with more. Not only that, but God will increase the the harvest of our righteousness. He will bless the result of our giving to others. And just in case it's not clear, Paul makes the point one more time in verse 11. He says, you will be enriched in every way. For what? To live in comfort and to give your children the best things? No. To be generous in every way. Can you see how different this is to the prosperity gospel? God is not promising to grow the size of our barns so that we can store more of the harvest for ourselves. He's promising to reward our generosity with more grace and keep supplying us with seed so that we can give it away to others and bless them, not so that we can store it up and eat it ourselves. God will reward our generosity. But we do need to have the right motives. Uh, Have a look at verse 7. Paul instructs the Corinthians uh, how they should think about giving. Verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is a general principle in the Christian life. God wants us to do good from the heart, not to please others. And so God is not interested in reluctant generosity. The important thing is not the amount of money, but the condition of the heart that gives the money. There's a story I heard about this. Uh, I'm not sure if it's true, but the point is right. Apparently during a uh, Scottish church service in England, the offering plate came around and someone accidentally put in a crown instead of a penny. Now, a crown used to be worth about 60 pennies. So it's the difference between putting in $1 and accidentally pulling in $50. And this church member, when they realized they put in the wrong size coin, uh, quietly said, Excuse me, can I have my crown back, please? Uh, But the usher said, In once, in forever. (laughs) And so the church member said, Oh, well, at least I'll get credit for it in heaven. No, said the usher, you'll only get credit for a penny. (laughs) The point of the story being that motives matter. Uh, God doesn't need our money. God wants us to learn to have generous hearts, Uh, that joyfully give, seeking to honour him. That's why Paul has been using every possible method to persuade the Corinthian church to give generously, but he never commands them. And he never tells them how much to give exactly. Because generosity must be from the heart, not from other people pressuring us. 
God loves a cheerful giver, not a grumpy one. So, if God has promised to reward our generosity and provide for us, then the question is, do we trust God's word? God is telling us that he's able to give us grace so that we will have all sufficiency in all things at all times and be enriched in every way. But do we believe that? Do we really believe that if we give generously, God will reward us with grace and keep supplying our needs? Or do we cling to the money that God has given us because we're afraid that God won't provide if we give it away? Do we trust? Remember the example of the Macedonian church? In the midst of their poverty, they trusted in God's grace and they kept sowing what little seed they have. They had. How about you? Uh, how confident are you in God's word? Uh, friends, this part of God's word has uh, challenged me personally. Uh, my family doesn't have much regular income right now. So I often struggle to be generous because I think to myself, if I give this away, uh, what will we live on in future? Humanly speaking, I can't imagine where uh, the money would come from. But 2 Corinthians here is reminding me that everything I already have comes from God. And these promises are challenging me to be more generous and trust that God will keep his word and supply our needs in the future. Because God does promise to reward our generosity. So let me recap uh, what we've seen so far. Uh, God's grace at work in our hearts is the source of generosity. Uh, the grace of Jesus is our example of generosity, the model we seek to imitate. And God's grace will reward our generosity so that we can keep being generous, he promises. So how do we put this into practice? Uh, I've got a few quick practical suggestions um, to help us think this through. Uh, firstly, as you think about how to use the money that God has given you, uh, Try thinking about two categories of giving in your budget. Uh, the first category is gospel partnership and ministry. That would include your local church giving and the missionaries you support. The second category is social justice, giving to the poor, sharing what you have with those in need. I think it's helpful to have two categories in your budget because we can often focus on one of these at the expense of the other. Uh, I think in Sydney, our tendency is to focus sometimes too much on giving towards, so much towards gospel partnership that we neglect being generous to the poor. Uh, I've been guilty of this myself. It's easy to think that gospel ministry is the higher priority and therefore all of my giving should go towards it because it brings about the most good. But the Bible calls us to do both. And in our passage this morning... God is showing us the importance of the second category. Paul is urging this Corinthian church to be generous to the poor in a faraway country. It's the principle of equality and putting our love into action and sharing what God has given us with those who have less. So putting two categories in your budget is a good starting point, I think, to make sure we're putting both types of generosity into action in our lives. Secondly, uh, I think we need to think hard about who the poor are for us today. 
We don't have many famines in Australia, and we have a lot of social services. So who are, the, who are those in need in our world today? Uh, let me suggest two organisations that you might want to investigate for your own giving. You may have heard of them, Anglican Aid and Compassion. Uh, I actually had a look at the Anglican Aid website this week, and I learnt about a whole lot of needs which the City Morning Herald hasn't been telling me about. Uh, Ethiopia is going through a huge famine and is desperate for help. Uh, Tanzania has had a huge earthquake recently, and many countries in the Middle East are desperate for help to care for refugees. Anglican Aid has partners in most of these countries they support. And closer to home in Australia, Anglican Aid has 20-odd different projects they support throughout the country for disadvantaged communities and those in need. Uh, we need to think hard about who the poor are in our world. They might not always be our neighbours. Uh, these are two organisations that you might find helpful. There are lots of others as well. And then lastly and thirdly, uh, make time to sit down and do it. Uh, pray and ask God for grace. Consider the example of Jesus and what he's done for you. Trust in God's good promises and then scatter the seed that God has given you with joy. Uh, that's God's grace. Let's pray about that now.